0: Well, we are uh, continuing our study with uh, looking at the nature of God, the person of God. We titled it, and uh, as we consider God's personhood. We've, we've looked at several areas. Come right in, come right in. We've spoken about God's immensity, uh, that he fills all things. Uh, we've spoken about his eternity, that he had no beginning and end, has no end spoke about his existence last week, um, and that was, of course, uh, very challenging for, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, I do, yes. And um, one of the questions that came up, I just want to readdress it for just a moment this morning, um, was concerning God's self-existence. Um that he himself has no need uh, whatsoever that God, by his very nature, has uh, no need, he has need of nothing, there is nothing that he's lacking that his creatures might supply and uh and you we all basically say, well yeah, that's right that's that's our God, but then we begin to kind of dive into that <laughs> thought a little bit, and we begin to kind of you know feel a little bit of, mm, I don't know about that, for instance, when we read out of the Westminster Confession of Faith that God is not benefited by our worship toward Him. Well, I, mean, that, you know, I don't know about that, or God is not benefited, or we might say we're not supplying anything toward God by our, rendering our service to Him, because if He has no need, if He is self-existent, if He is standing in no need of any other whatsoever, then that's true of us and our relationship hidden as well. So it's challenging when you think of it in those terms. And for those of you who weren't here, I apologize for the fact that you don't have the backstory. but I did want to address one thing that, that came up last week. Paul brought the, rightly brought the question up. We were talking about God and his essence not having any need whatsoever. I was <clears throat> attempting to speak of the, the, uh, the interrelationship of the Trinity and um, I said, and I think the more I thought about it, and so I wanted to readdress it, I think my wording led us down the wrong path. My wording was that, that since God has no need, then Father has no need of Son, Son has no need of Father, Holy Spirit has no need. That to us in our typical vocabulary gives the wrong impression. So I see what I and Paul rightly raises the question. Now, wait a minute. What I was attempting to do is speak about God's unity, God's simplicity. God is one, as the scriptures teach, and he is one God yet, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as mysterious as that is, it's how he's revealed in the scripture. So being eternal and indivisible, Father is not one-third of God. Son is not one-third of God. Spirit is not one-third of God. Father is all God. Son is all God. Spirit is all God. Therefore, and that's what I was trying to get to and never could quite get there last week, had to sit down and ruminate on Paul for a while because obviously uh, describing the Trinity and the mystery of his eternity in our vocabulary is difficult. Um, What I was trying to get at was essentially what uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter two, paragraph three, and I'll read it for you here. It makes a little—it makes a little more sense when I say it that way. Or at least I don't lead our minds down the wrong path. I gave the impression by saying the father has no need of the son. Um, that almost makes God divisible, doesn't it? That one could exist without the other. That's what Paul brought up. That's impossible because God is one. There's no—there's no possibility of one existing without the other. They are I and I am. Is how he describes himself. So. When we start trying to work those things out, we get into a few uh, between a rock and a hard place, like I did. But this is a this is a paragraph that uh, that the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession have uh, concerning God and um, the Holy Trinity. And um, paragraph three says, "In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistencies." Uh, uh, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity. Here's the part that I was trying to get across. Each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Each having the whole divine essence, and yet the essence undivided. So it's really an impossibility that that the Father exists without the Son, or the Son without the Spirit, or the Spirit without the Father, because they are they are one. But what... The, the confession there is bringing out, I think, and, and uh, what's challenging to us to think about is that we're not talking about a, a God that is, you know, um, the Son is yet God, and the Father is yet God, and the Spirit is yet God, not one third of each. Challenging, isn't it? Challenging for me, and I'm the one teaching, so... But, so that, is that a little better Paul? I felt like it. I, I didn't know. It's not, not better Oh, So, maybe? Yeah, I think that helps. Okay. But it's, again, it's the, for me, what is the essence of the Trinity? What, what is there between the three members of the Trinity that, that makes it work? And that's, the Trinity is, is the only thing that makes Christianity different. Our God has three parts, three persons. What is it in that aspect that? What's going on in the Trinity? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's good question. I've been reading about this. <laughs> yeah. But from what I've been gleaning is that it's the love that takes place between the different members of the Trinity that causes the Trinity to be the Trinity. Without without that love taking place between one and the other two, you know, it's that's what. And God has invited us to join in that mm-hmm. in that circle of love, mm-hmm. which. That's what heaven's all about. Yeah, Jesus said, "I and my Father are one," mm-hmm. and He spoke in John seventeen of the glory which He had with the Father before the world existed. Mm-hmm. And so, and He spoke over and over of the love that He had, the Father had to Him, He had to the Father, and that unity of person and that includes of the spirit, mm-hmm. um, and that we are, as you said, being brought into that that love. And so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I would never deny that, of course. If I was not to deny that, I'd be become <laughs> heretic. Yeah. But but in explaining that relationship, you know, what's going on in the Trinity, you said, uh, I'd like to know, too. I'd like to be able to have more of a glimpse into that, and we will in the future uh, we're a uh, single being like, like Buddha or whoever, you're, you're just one thing. You can't love anything because you're all there is. Mm-hmm. You can, so God needed the three parts to make the love complete. Well, and the only thing I would qualify, and that's where I got into my trouble last time, is that God has no need. So, I know you're expressing the fact that that's, how, that's who God is and what God is, but he has always been. But he exists alone in eternity, in those three persons having no need whatsoever. So, it's a challenge. Yeah. So. But uh, <clears throat> we'll, move, we'll move on from there. Today we're going to talk about <clears throat> God in relationship to himself. And if you'll open your Bibles to Psalm 102, <clears throat> and I have done a lot, I've done a lot more research in those areas, Paul, because it's, it's only right when you get into yourself in a quandary that you, you know, you know, look at others that have written past, try to find more, but but i I, I found not very much help in that area. <laughs> they all said, they all summarized your your uh, statements. what's going on in the Trinity, we'd like to know. <laughs> In Psalm 102, in verse 25 through 27, we read this, Of old thou hast found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou wilt change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. When we speak of God in relationship to himself, we are speaking about God's immutability. Um, In the infinity of God with reference to himself, and this is uh, the notes on the sheet that I gave you there, uh, his infinity with reference to himself is called his immutability. I-M-M-U-T-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Immutability. Basically, by this we mean that the nature and attributes and the will of God are not subject to change. Um, and when we think of his immutability, we might compare it to the word mutable. In the dictionary, the word mutable is an adjective that has several shades of meaning. And the first is capable or tending or likely to change. There's a second definition, at least in Webster's, and uh, there's three that I found, but the second one is capable of changing, capable of change, or subject to change, very similar, and then with reference to biology, tending to undergo mutation. Uh, It's used to describe a gene or organism that has a tendency to undergo mutation. So the likelihood that something will change, the potential for change, the possibility of change, makes those things mutable. And in fact, all things but God are mutable. God himself is not subject to change whatsoever. His nature cannot change. His purpose cannot change. His will cannot change and does not change because God is in fact immutable. He said in, uh, you don't have to turn there, but he said in Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I do not change. And so therefore his promises Word do not change. And we'll look into that a little bit more as we go. Now, Stephen uh, uh, Charnock, the, the Puritan theologian, wrote about 1853 in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God. He wrote this Thou art, he's commenting on that verse in Psalm, Thou art the same. That is, the same God, the same in essence and in nature, the same in will and purpose. Thou dost change all other things as thou pleasest, but thou art immutable in every respect, and receivest no shadow of change, though never so light and small. He is describing that there is not even an infinitesimal possibility that God would change in any way. There is not a small change in God, there is not a large change in God. There is simply the eternal uh, immutability uh, of God. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning in more detail. To do that, if I could get someone to read James one seventeen. James one seventeen. There is
1: no variation
0: or All right, Father of Lights. And uh, every good gift comes from him, there's no variation. And so we might begin by asking the question what effect does the constant variation movement motion of the universe uh, what effect does that have upon God? You know, stars are are extinguishing themselves uh, uh, astronomers tell us and and um, you know the, the moon and the Sun have... Variation to them and movement to them. They have cycles and courses. The stars have their courses. The Bible tells us there's there's uh, growth, there's deterioration. What is that constant movement and motion of the universe? How does that affect God Himself? Does it have an effect upon God? Okay, Andrew says no. Okay, in what sense? Because He created it, He's pleased with it. He set those things in motion. We're not talking about a sense of his own pleasure in his creation. We, we understand that. But in what way does it not have effect? Um, because it's outside of him. He's over
1: of it.
0: He's outside of it. He's outside of it. And he, yes. me, yes. of it. Yes.
1: And he is over all of it. And so that he, not, he is.
0: Well, I think you're right. He, he existed before the creation, and he was whole, and he was complete, standing in no need, completely self-sufficient, self-existent, and he never changed then. So in relation to his creation, he certainly continues to be immutable. And keep that in mind, because God is today and will be forever and ever what he has always been. He did not grow by stages He's always today what he has always been and will always be. Keep in mind that before he created a single molecule of creation, before any angel, any man, any molecule of the known universe, he existed forever and ever and ever alone and satisfied in eternity. He was immutable then, and he's immutable today. And so those things, again, come and challenge our our mind, and challenge our thoughts of God, because I think mainly... They challenge us because of two reasons. One, we have let our theology slip from the biblical uh, teaching. We've got the good old gray haired man in the sky, like grandpa, we're his grandchildren. We, we say, Grandpa, I need this, I need that, and grandpa's going to do what we need. Uh, or a genie, maybe it's in the bottle, that you rub the bottle, and poof, the genie comes out and grants your wishes. These are wrong ideas of who God is and our relationship to Him. Then I think the other reason we tend to let our ideas of God slip uh, is selfishness and pride and the thinking that we ourselves, that God needs us. That God, we're contributing to God somehow. We're making God, you know, the, the military says be all that you can be and, and, you know, Uncle Sam needs you. Well, we can't think of those term, thoughts in terms of God. God doesn't need you, but he will you and loves you so don't think of it in terms of fulfilling or meeting a need something that god lacked but think of it as god's eternal purpose to let us enter in as paul said to the to the loving relationship that the trinity enjoys But doesn't it i mean i'm just being honest about today's theology i mean we have we have watered down teaching we have let the we've defined god by our own terms we've compared him to ourselves Basically, we have brought God down to our own level where we're comfortable with him. because We're not accountable to somebody like us. We are accountable to the God of the Bible. and Therefore, when we elevate our thoughts upward to where he is and who he is, it's often challenging to our thinking. And of course, we want to be sure that these are, that this is biblically understanding God as he is. No. Sometimes we do have to clarify the terms, as I, as I did at the beginning. So, yeah, I thought we might have. I just wanted to say something there Okay. alright so no change whatsoever James 7, 1.17 just a quick little bit about that because that could be uh, uh, the wording there might catch a few of you but it speaks of, of God as the father of lights meaning that he is an unchangeable excellent dignity he has glory and power and honor um, that is so great that it outshines the sun I think that's capturing the essence of that, of that verse no shadow of, of turning, in reference to the heavenly sun and the, and the glory of it, but God's excellent glory outshines the sun. He's the Father of lights. He's created uh, the cosmic lights where they are in their glory. And, you know, um, you know, you can't stare at the sun without some damage to the physical eyes. And no man can, has seen God at any time, nor can behold Him. Only we have had Him revealed uh, in Christ, who is the fullness of His glory. That's the idea. Okay, well, continue on. Job 23, verses 13 and 14 bring out a different aspect of God's immutability. Let me just encourage you, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Job, read through that. Just take some time and and make that a part of your your, uh, reading the Word of God. Very, very enlightening with reference to the nature of god how many times will you see god confronting these men in their own so-called wisdom and he corners them badly Right, and that's me and that's you he says well where were... let me ask you a question you've got all these questions for me Job, and the others let me ask you a question where were you when i stretched out the heavens Ooh, did i need your opinion when i created the universe were you there to help me? Were you my counselor then? You know, so you're like, hmm got me. Got me good. But it's a perspective. It's, God is not uh, unloving and unkind. He's exactly the opposite. He's most loving and kind and gracious with us. But we need to think his thoughts after him and not our thoughts of what we want him to be. Job 23, 13 and 14 says this. But he is of one mind, or another translation says unique, and who can turn him what his soul desires that he does but he performs what is appointed for me and many such decrees are with him he's of one mind who can change him who can turn him around so let me ask this question then does god ever change his mind no. who, who said no funny no okay i've got one no <laughs>
1: Well, in essence, he does not change his mind, but I think there are places where it's not kind of seen, but
0: in, in the, you're You're on the right
1: track. I'm getting ready to talk about, but, but he does his purposes and his will and his essence does not
0: change. Yeah. If he can change his mind, would that end? Way it would, but it, it would indicate that he right purpose one thing, willed one thing, set it in motion, and then changed, which would yeah, indicate that either a lack of knowledge or lack of power to carry out the purpose, or he would gain further information as he went along, like we do. A lot of times we'll gain further information and we'll retract our and, you know, back up and, and go forward from there. But
1: if he gained further information, it
0: would indicate that he's not on mission exactly. There isn't any information God does not know. There's no possibility of in scriptures there are a few
1: instances where God repented God mm-hmm. changed his mind or whatever, but that's just our intention at mm-hmm. our uh, level so that we can understand it. That's yes. all that it is. Uh in Jonah, he was gonna destroy the mm-hmm. earth. He didn't. His
0: mind a hundred years later, he did. Mm-hmm. He didn't change his mind, he just stayed his judgment for this mm-hmm. century, right. right? And we'll go, we'll go, I'll get to you just a second, Sandra. We'll go to Genesis 6 is one of those places where it talks about God repenting, and there are several of them. I think it's worth looking at one as a sample of where it talks about God, uh, as Faith said, changing his mind, or it appears so. And it, it, it's, I agree with. You. Bonnie, that it, it, it's an accommodation to us to say that he's changing his mind, because in the eternal sense he can't can't change his mind. He doesn't have to. But uh, Genesis six, um, see, verses six and seven is one of those places. Yeah, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and was grieved in his heart. I mean, that right there says, oh, you know what? Well, we we immediately think, at least in terms of how we live and think that it's a mistake. It was something you wish you had not done. And verse 7 says, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. There's no other way to understand those that language other than the fact that it's presenting a case that God viewed it as something that he did that now he wishes he hadn't done. But We must understand that in light of the essence and nature of God, that he's incapable of changing. He has no need to change because he's set forth a perfect eternal purpose which he is carrying out uh, every day in every place. And so it's, it is an accommodation of language. It's, it is um accommodation of language to us. It, from our point of view, maybe it's another way to approach it, it appears that God changes his mind, and so he couches it in that language. But God knew what he was going to do. He's always known what he's going to do. And so what he's doing for us is because he is gracious and kind and loving and he's drawing us to himself, he is drawing out from us those things which he desires to draw out. For instance, I think of a place or two where he threatened to kill someone and then he did not kill them immediately, individually. And so, you know, there's change because it appears that, well, they did these things, and so God didn't kill them after all. He was drawing out from them uh, things that, that were necessary to relate, that they might relate to their God in a better way. Senator, go ahead. I stopped earlier. Well, yeah. I remember that Paul's question uh, was are the writing, and as we were reading, you can find,
1: too, in the Old Testament, where it so, says, if you do this, this is how I would And if you do this, I would, if you just can't, I will. If you do not, you know, so the judgment's kind of put it through there. And then in, in here, what uh, strikes me is we lay that those in Genesis. Uh, when you go a little further, it says he just raised in this car. And then it brings like
0: said that the same you know think of God in terms of uh, as the sun uh, the sun will melt the wax the same sun will melt the wax and harden the clay and so it is not that God is changing but that we're moving in and out of relationally those things where we have been promised the favor of God versus those things where we are out of the favor of God ultimately as Sandra said those that are his he knows and saves. Ultimately, that's the reason we'll be saved. But, but relationally, the Bible speaks of many things, you know, of, of, of sin. When we sin, we are to do what? We're to just say, well, Okay, it's covered by the blood. Of course not. We are to do what when we sin? And we recognize it. Confess. Expecting what in return? God will forgive. cleanse cleanses us. Well, those are where we, God's not changing or changing his mind or changing his ways of dealing with us, but it's us in our relational aspect of our our living, our faith journey, moving in and out of those areas of of, uh, relational with him. He's not changing, but he's made promises by which if we keep them, uh, we are blessed, and if we do not, we we are not. God's not changing. doesn't change his mind he doesn't have to repent in fact i wrote down one more verse it's first samuel 15 29 where it's kind of the the converse of that thought uh, about god changing his mind or god repenting first samuel 15 verse 29 also the glory of israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind which is true and God's sorry that he made man on the earth and he changed his mind or he's not a man and he should have to change his mind he doesn't ever change his mind well they're both true because it's 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 contrasting the eternal essence and nature of God doesn't have to change his mind will never change his mind never change his will versus the relational aspect with us where it appears that he is changing his mind as he accommodates the uh, his language to us uh, you know, i don't know any other way to, to think of it and try to get it right biblically other than to understand the foundational truth that god does not change you know, that's that's where I, I land first then in all these other areas where my mind struggles to relate that biblical truth to my relational you know my faith journey with interaction with you and my life and circumstances and and, and and with God, those those things I have to keep landing on the fact that God's not changing his mind, those things. Not backing up and regrouping and rethinking. If that were the case, he would not be gone. Not be uh immutable, indivisible. Anybody have thoughts on that? On the you know the fact that he's immutable in the sense that he doesn't change his mind, he doesn't change his will. Yeah, okay.
1: In our a we that we kind of passed that We pray will be done. we little
0: Revealing that and drawing it out is in, in, in the prayer that yeah, we're
1: calling
0: now. us to pray. Yeah. pray As we said a couple of weeks back, I think it was, is prayer necessary? You know, is it? But when I'm changing God or changing God's mind, we are aligning ourselves with the Spirit of God. And we are accomplishing the things that God wants accomplished in and through us, through our prayers. But that's because when we pray according to the will of God, we have what we ask. And it is the Spirit of God leading us in those prayers. And so that's that's a great thing. I'm sorry. But that's not the way we need to go to God
1: because He's conform us.
0: Spirit, we pray, we are accomplishing the will of God, not because we're changing God, but because He's prompting us to pray. It was Virgin that said that whenever God wants something done, He sets His people to pray. <laughs> you know, and that's one sense that we can understand that relationship. God's going to accomplish His will. He's not going to do it apart from our prayers, He's doing it through our prayers. Doesn't mean we're changing God by praying, but our earnest filled with faith, are agreeing with the will of God, and he's accomplishing his purpose. I'll say without prayer, nothing will will be done. With prayer, all things will be done. All things are possible with faith and prayer. But just never think that we're twisting God's arm behind his back in heaven by our prayers. He's accomplishing his will. He's, He's pleased to use men and women to call men and women. He's pleased to use men and women to pray to accomplish his will pleased and gracious to let us enter into this relationship with him of love and our dependence upon him. He's not dependent upon us. All right, another aspect of it uh, is found in Psalm 33. Let me just encourage you guys, if you don't, I may have some copies of this at home. This is the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, but it's almost verbatim of the Westminster, which I also have at home and um, it was companion also to the uh, Savoy Declaration, which was from the Congregationalists. Um, but they were all in complete agreement, uh, except for a few matters of, of church order. Um, and and so, when you quote from one, you're almost quoting from the other. Um, so you know, it's not very it's not very uh, thick. It, there's a lot to it, of course, with the scriptural references. But I just encourage you to read through the Westminster. Let I me mean, encourage you to look at those Bible verses. It again does kind of what this study does, and it at first it, it's kind of prickly, you know, at first it's kind of you know rubbing you the wrong way a little bit, but it but it reminds you of, you know, no, that's right. That is true. You know, God is in fact immutable. And, and God didn't create mankind out of the need that he had somehow, but he created us out of his own good pleasure that he might display his glory in letting us see him for, for who he is for all he's he time. They didn't need me. So those are the types of things you get as you read through these confessions of faith. You understand that that was a basis from which the, they, they understood God. The Puritans, best I understand it, I'm no expert at all, best I understand it, were had struck one of the best balances that we know from history, Christian history, of being doctrinally accurate and yet very loving and pastoral in their hearts. So well, they never got the idea from studying God's immutability or eternity or self-existence or omnipresence or omniscience. They never got the idea from that that He was a cold God in heaven. It was a stainless steel God. They, it warmed their hearts toward Him. It warmed their affections. It motivated their service. It encouraged their evangelism. So well, they were they were doctrinally you know accurate scripturally, but they were very pastoral. Uh, in their hearts, and so I think that that's where you you end up studying God for who He is, and where we should end up if we're understanding Him rightly. Yeah. Yeah. There we see that not in that sin is going to do anything with God, but by being a
1: personal God. Grief, and created, and then we see the love of God in Jonah, where he laid that, that punishment. That how that was. That, I don't. I don't know what I'm compare, I just think it shows us into the heart of God.
0: Um,
1: both of those.
0: So There's a strict standard of righteousness. Right. He cannot deny himself, but it shows a love and compassion and grace that he always extends to us as fallen creatures. And that and that those open arms that are drawing us ever toward him, you know, he could have saved no one We've been a just God, you know. But he's chosen to say and show, extend mercy, and, and reveal himself to us in that loving relationship. It is a relationship of love. Don't let, the, you know, our minds ever go outside of that. You know, as we study God, don't ever think that uh, because he's unaffected in his eternal essence that he is not relational to us. Like she like said, he's grieved in his heart. That's true. There's no way to understand that. We can't grieve the spirit. And so because he's a personal God, not a, an orb of light, untouched and uncaring and, you know. The whole
1: thing that Jesus did shows us that he was just, that he should have raised, so that was a them that saved. So even though he showed his judgment, and that's what we're going to see, is the judgment, but we're also in the grace of God and the mercy of God, and that they're going to live in that same. You know, so, and then, of course, right and you know, even though he feared in judgment. They
0: they're, 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 no, yeah. Yeah. You see, right on the heels of the fall, obviously God, in his eternal purpose, purposed the fall, another challenge for us. And yet you see in that, the consequences of the fall, God began to lead out Adam and Eve. And you can see right on the heels of that, the gospel promise. Right? Remember that, that the seed of the woman, referencing Christ, would... Brushed the head and the seed of the serpent. You see that, that immediately on the heels of man's greatest tragedy, in disobeying God in a perfect environment with no, uh, with no tendency towards sin other than just his free choice. Now we have tendency towards sin. We're born in sin. We are born under the wrath of God. But Adam and Eve were not created in a perfect environment with no predisposition to rebel at all. It pure relationship with God. But that choice plunged us as a, as a race into the depravity that we know in the wrath of God. And yet right on the heels of that, immediately on the heels of God meeting out that judgment, he gave them the promise of Christ who was to come. And it be the remedy for, for that rebellion. So you see both of them there examples. So I think we have that pattern throughout the scripture. All right. Um, did we go to Psalm 33? Is that where we are? Okay, <laughs> Psalm 33, good study. I appreciate your participation, I really do. Um, let's look at verse 11, Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord, uh, actually it's back up to 10, pardon me. The, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. and He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. And there's that contrast, the Lord can can say, no, that's not what's gonna happen. That will not happen. The plans of of the greatest empires that the world has ever known were according to the will of God and they were not going beyond those bounds. And yet the Lord Himself is not his will and purpose is not changed or dictated by anyone outside of himself because his counsel stands forever and whatever he has planned, we might say his eternal decree is being carried out. Generation after generation after generation. The frustrating of that, that plan, ultimately speaking. Nebuchadnezzar found that out, didn't he, in Daniel chapter 4, verses 35 and 36. When he defied God, and God made him as dumb as cow, and he ate grass, and his nails grew long, and his hair grew long, and his senses went out from him, and for a period of seven years. And when after that, God brought his mind back to him, and he got a haircut and trimmed his nails, <laughs> and his friends returned to him. He gave one of the greatest biblical declarations of the sovereignty and power of God in all the scripture. And he was not a saved man. He was not regenerate. But he declared, after having seen the power of God, that God does according to his will among the armies of heaven uh, and upon earth. And no one is going to say to God, hey, what are you doing? You're not going to stop him. and we are not going to question him. He does according to his will. Uh, so good stuff done too. So well, God has made his plans known from the beginning. In fact, God knows the end from the beginning. How, as we come to Isaiah 46, and this is where we'll end for today, almost got all of it in there. Isaiah forty six verses nine and ten. How does God how can God declare the end? How can God say with absolute <coughs> certainty what is going to happen at the end if he is not immutable isaiah 46 9 and 10 says this remember the former things long past for i am god and there is no other i am god and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times the things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and i will accomplish all my good pleasure Uh, god declares in from the beginning in many ways he has he has declared things that are uh, were to come and they've been fulfilled perfectly he has also declared things yet to come as far as human history is concerned and we have confidence that those will also be declared perfectly if he were to declare something to be and it did not come to pass that way. God would be found a liar. But He puts it out there that we may know and glory in the fact that He knows all things and accomplishes those things perfectly according to His will, in His divine purpose. So, in a sense, was it just your choice and my choice to be here this morning? It was our choice. I chose to get up. I chose to, to, to you know, comb my hair choose this jacket and put my shoes on and you and you drive the car you did too but ultimately speaking